0: to negotiate on your own behalf if you don't like conflict. How to showcase that you're an expert to your boss and your coworkers. How to properly disagree with someone. How to defy your boss effectively and not disrespectfully. How to learn to accept varying opinions and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 379 with psychology professor, author and speaker, Todd Kashti. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Best You Podcast with me, Nick Carrier. I believe the path to getting closer to the best version of yourself is different for all of us, but it follows the same framework. Our lives have six different areas, health, personal, career, financial, spiritual, and relational. And in order to get closer to the best version of ourselves, we want to be managing all of those areas at all times, but also be spiking in one of them. If you want to learn how to do this, check out my free Best You Planner and video course at www.nickcarrier.com slash bestjourney. Again, nickcarrier.com slash bestjourney. Today, I am so excited to bring you arguably one of my favorite podcast episodes of all time with the one and only Dr. Todd Cashton. Todd is a world-recognized authority on well-being, curiosity, psychological strengths, mental agility, and resilience. Dr. Cashin is a professor of psychology at George Mason University. He's published over 200 scholarly articles and is the author of five books, including his newest, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Before diving in, be sure you're subscribing to The Best You Podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member while you're listening. Just send them to dickcarrier.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, I'd love it if you'd leave a five-star rating and review. But without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Todd Caston. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. I am super excited today to bring on the one and only Dr. Todd Caston. Todd, I just want to start off by saying thanks so much for spending the time with me today.
1: Yeah, super psyched to be with someone who's into fitness and psychology. <laughs>
0: No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I was already excited heading into today and a few minutes that we were discussing beforehand, I I got me even further excited uh, about our conversation. I know everybody's going to love it and get a ton of value out of it. But Todd is the author of the new book called The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And, you know, we'll probably get get into a little bit of maybe like psychology, a little bit into it, but I kind of want you to give everybody a little bit of a background with regards to like why you felt like this topic was a most important topic for you to focus on and to write a book on, right? You've been a professor of psychology at George Mason for 17 years now. Why is this something that is a big pain point for people and a big pain point for the world, if you will, and why you needed to write a book on this topic?
1: I'm glad you phrased it that way because this was the book of I think this is a societal deficit and courage and somebody's got to put the pieces together in terms of not just saying and putting bumper stickers and shirts on of being brave, but hey, we've got 60 years of science that nobody's really written about of there are tools, tips, and strategies for how to have the boldness to question popular sentiments and social norms and rules and obligations and authority figures that we know are absurd. We know they're going on the wrong direction. We know it's problematic. I should probably say that I started writing this book six years ago. So this is before Trump. This is before COVID. Um, This is before the, the racial reckoning in the aftermath of George Floyd. So at that time, you had the Arab Springs was happening where social media was still kind of like, hey, thumbs up, social media is a good thing. You got these people under totalitarian regimes in Tunisia and Libya. They're able to find other people. They're able to find people like me on the other side of the planet. And it was that social mobilization that allowed them to basically um, rebelliously fight and kind of win some of their rights. And since then, uh, social media has taken a little bit of a nosedive in terms of how it's been appreciated, used, and manipulated. And this, I mean, this is a book about, it's not about rebels. It's not about insubordination. It's not about raging against the machine, although great band. It's really a book about how do you get closer to bridging the gap between the utopian ideal of how you could possibly live your life, even if it's outside the mainstream as long as you're not interfering with the well-being of other people and how do you get a society that functions better and so it's about people it's about individuals it's about groups and it's about society
0: so when you wrote this book were you did the original idea of it come up because of kind of that macro view of things with regards to this is kind of just how societies progress with regards to new ideas and innovation and creativity, or was it more of a, you seeing on an individual level, people weren't, didn't have the courage to be insubordinate and they didn't have the courage to go against the status quo. What was like, was it the big, the macro thing or the small thing that got you prompted to want to write a book like this?
1: Yeah. So great question. I think, you know, the answers both. I mean, yeah. I teach Undergraduate classes of 40 to 75 at a time. And I would hear the murmurings from them of they were afraid to say what they actually thought when they were in group settings and and in their classrooms and at work is, you know, people would say something based on their political ideology. And there's a silence. And the sad part about this is twofold. One This is the future generation that is going to lead society. And if they bite their tongue now, if they play it safe, if they're unwilling to get into conversations, and then how are they suddenly going to flip a switch when they're 30 and 40 and 50, when they gain power and status and actually do something? I mean, you're a fitness trainer. Your everyday habits determine what your personality is going to be over the course of your lifespan. And if every single day you decide I'm going to be risk averse, keep my head down make sure I get a promotion, make sure I get big paychecks. It's not going to flip five years later when you get job security and you get the house and you get the two and a half kids and the white picket fence. And on the other side are the leaders. Geez, like who are these people that are running Starbucks and target and giant food giants and in, in university classrooms where they're not allowing people to disagree with them. And they might say they allow them, but everybody knows what the real rule is by the first person that dissents from the consensus. However, the responses to them, no yeah. matter what people say, those are the norms and those are the distribution of punishments that come to people that um, have a view that's left of center or right of center.
0: So, there is obviously, as you said, a lot of people are afraid to speak their mind, and they and they'll hold back what their true opinions or thoughts are with the fear of being rejected or shut down or canceled, if you will. You know, cancel cultures become a little bit of a thing now, and, and on probably university campuses, uh, especially. I feel like a lot of what you're doing with your book is trying to, as you say, give people the skills, the knowledge, the expertise to be able to use the strategy of principled insubordination and do it in the right way rather than just have like dysfunctional and harmful disagreement. And so do you feel like the way to kind of almost solve the problem or make other people more willing to listen? Do you think it's more the person who disagrees? They need to be more skilled or is it the person who does the canceling or does the rejecting, is that person need to just not be as not accepting, unaccepting of the view? Does that make sense?
1: I have separate chapters of when you're the messenger and when you're the audience member because we oscillate between the two. If this podcast flipped around and I was interviewing you, you would be the messenger and I would be the receiver in terms of, and I could be challenging and questioning and having a real lack of trust and a great assumption that you're biased in your thinking and that you're you're being disingenuous for what you're thinking. That could be my default strategy, and it could be a very contentious, unnecessarily argumentative podcast. The alternative approach, which is how we're kind of playing right now, and which is what I advocate for, is kind of the trifecta of strengths, which is curiosity, intellectual humility, and then perspective getting and perspective taking. And that that last one is pretty keen. We always jump to perspective taking, but first you have to get it. Like I have to know like all right, what is who's Nick Carrier? What's the motivations mm. behind his behavior? You know, I can make some immediate assumptions of having never met you before this podcast and say okay, this is a guy that really cares about his body. This is a guy that's really concerned about improving people's psychology so they could master their their sense of of control, have a sense of agency. And I could say to myself this guy's grandiose, this guy's narcissistic, this guy's like full of himself, like he still cares what he looks like in a t-shirt, you know, and he's way past well not way past, but past 20 years of age, like when is he going to not care what people think? Those could be my initial assumptions. And what what perspective getting is, is you can develop all the stereotypes you want on the surface recognition of another human being, but you need to hold them very loosely and tentatively, very softly in your hand. And the idea is I'm looking for as much information, every nonverbal that you have, every verbal expression that you admit, and I'm looking to update my idea of Nick Carrier. As we progress this in this conversation, and I only use this as an example of how we should be walking through the world and what people aren't doing, people are labeling, categorizing, boxing people based on very superficial bits of information, what your sex is, what your race is, what your age is. The bumper sticker on your car, the quality of your car. I was just driving around with my 15 year old yesterday because illegally, I'm teaching her how to drive. Although I probably shouldn't be publicly proclaiming this, just in case I have a heart attack, she can get me to a hospital. So it's. I think that that's more valuable than whatever the police would say. I'm willing to be on a panel with them, and what we were talking about, I was as we were driving. You got to remember back to when before you were a driver. Was I would ask her, "Hey, which lane do you think I should go in on, based on the information you grab by the car, in terms of the bumper stickers, the scratches, the quality of the car, how you know the maintenance of it?" And then we were kind of guessing of like which would be the best lane to go into. Who's going to drive faster? Who's going to be slower? Who's going to be easier to kind of wheel the way around? And we were just we were I was basically giving her a psychology lesson with the really fun way of playing with stereotypes. And then we kind of play with, when we get it wrong, what does that say about updating our system? We need to be doing that as we walk through the world and stop othering people.
0: That's that's that was, that's so good. That's such a good example too, because you think you know the answer with regards to the best lane to go in. And then you go and you're like, damn it. How did I not realize that? Or And then same thing. I, the other thing that I thought about with regards to is like going into the right grocery checkout line. I feel like I picked the wrong line every single time. And I guess I'm probably subconsciously picking it because of some sort of stereotype that I might have about the people online or the check, the cashier themselves. And then, and then I, but I don't probably take that step back and be like, what did I actually, why did I make that decision? And what did I actually learn from it? So I think that's an awesome thing to do. I think I love the, you said perspective, you said cure uh, intellectual curiosity perspective getting what were some of those other things that you mentioned
1: curiosity intellectual humility and then perspective getting and taking so nick okay. what i love about your example and this is like a really fun thing for for everyone listening to use is kind of like little this is like your mental gym you know as you as you do this we, and we all do this you know you see five lines at, at the grocery store you have to pick one you don't do it randomly You do it based on proxies of what you think will lead to a fast transaction that's in front of you. So what I would suggest to develop your wherewithal to be better at being intellectually humble, curious, and perspective-gating is when you get this right, just take a few seconds to think about what led you to make that good decision. And when you get it wrong, think about updating your stereotypes in terms of just understanding this. And it's not really about just getting through quickly. It's you start to develop this muscle inside your mental apparatus in terms of all of us hold stereotypes, and we have to honor that. It's not a bad thing. They're shortcuts, and we have to really intentionally try to improve them, and it's only going to happen if we're willing to be humble enough to say... I know less than I think I do. And other people that are like me and unlike me have tons of different ideas. And my job as a human being who wants to evolve is extract that knowledge and wisdom.
0: Yeah. No, I like that. You have to be, like you said, humble enough to hold your stereotypes loosely and be willing to update them. But then I think you also have to be aware of when you are placing stereotypes and you're not even realizing because, for example, I'd, I never I would have thought about the fact that I was maybe using stereotypes, picking a grocery line or picking a car. And so you kind of have to realize when you might be doing that so that you can take a step back and assess why you made those decisions that you made.
1: Let me stretch it into a topic, and I apologize if I'm jumping here. Is uh, one of the big prejudices that society allows right now, and this gets back to insubordination, a norm that really I want to challenge is ageism. And we just we are very comfortable just always blasting people, you know, particularly like older white guys. These are just these are just pawns for us to pick on. There's nobody is writing an article saying comedians should stop picking on old white guys. But a lot of these people, you know, if uh, old white guys were your Vietnam War veterans, were your World War II veterans, you know, th- you know, you don't know anything about them, and they might have actually raised five kids, you know, with working two jobs. Nobody knows the story underneath. So what I wanted to say was, you know, I just joined during COVID a pickleball league because we were able to distance from each other, and the age range is from my nine-year-old daughter, who's the youngest respect for myself as a parent. And then the oldest is in their 70s. Now, when you play, when you get onto the court for any sport against someone in their 70s, you say to yourself, got this? Like, I work out, I stretch, my hamstrings aren't tight. Like, please. And what I learned really quickly is when people get older, they change. It's, it's a, a jagged profile. They change what they focus on. So they're not focusing on strength. They're not focusing on agility. They're focusing on really intelligent reading of other players. And Mm. they would just could stand there like stone, but they were reading my eyes, watching my paddle. And it was as if they were just like an impenetrable force. And you learn to update very quickly. Like, oh, older adult does not mean bad player. And what I like about these examples is that I don't want everyone to think that dissenting and defying is at the level of the government or politics or your workplace. It's also these small things in terms of social norms that hold too big of a grip on us because we learned it from culture.
0: Mm. No, I like it. I think that's a a great example. Uh, But one of the things I wanted to kind of transition to a little bit just because I feel like I know a lot of peers and friends and colleagues that talk about this topic and it's with regards to maybe they're in a in a workplace or they're in a work situation where they do disagree a lot with their boss or maybe the other people around them and they don't know how to navigate it there. They do hold their tongue because they don't know how to fight for themselves or fight for their own opinion. Um, and so what is the best way for if somebody is upset with their bosses or their coworkers seemingly lack of acceptance of their different ideas, what is the best way to go about having that principled insubordination and communicating the thoughts that you have?
1: Great question. And I like that you're moving this to the practical. So let me have a tie for, for number one. So two things. One, When you are communicating a new idea, and that could be, it could be just be a criticism of the establishment or dominant social order, or it could be, here's a new way or innovation that I've come up with, or you know, those are the two big bins that we're thinking of. The most important thing as a messenger is to showcase you are an insider. Now, there's a term from the 60s in psychology called idiosyncrasy credits. Bear with me here because it sounds more nerdy than it needs to be it actually works, is that over the course of your workplace, over time, you are going to engage in behaviors, actions, and effortful activity that will show you are a good member of the team. Do your work on time. It's effective. You show up at meetings. You respond to emails. As you do that over time, you are building up capital, social capital that you can spend. Later, When you have these challenging ideas, as you build up capital, you are able to spend them. Your idiosyncrasies now can come out. You can expose your weirdness and your unusualness because you've shown you have some level of normalcy and you understand the culture and the other people that are there. When you do that and spend those idiosyncrasy credits to do something unusual or say something unusual, you want to clarify you are a good team member and you are an insider. So, you want a reference of the fact, like, listen, you know, for the past three years, I've worked in product and development, and Jim and Jessica, you guys know me. You know, I'm responsive, I'm on time. And I've been doing a lot of thinking. I'm like, hey, what are the next couple of years going to look like? And I've been thinking that there's maybe we need to do things a little bit differently that could be more effective because the market's changing. That opening, if you deconstruct what I just did there, I mentioned people's names which kind of brings them in as collaborators for what I'm going to say. And people love hearing their own name. I've referenced the past, good things that have happened where people can nod their heads like, yeah, you're right. You're right, Todd. You know what? You've done your thing. You've done your time. Glad that you're here. And that lowers people's defenses for them to reveal what could be a very challenging idea, which leads to number two, which is a tie for the best thing that you could be doing. The greatest predictor that a new idea will actually be implemented and accepted and built upon by other people in the workplace is ease. Mm -hmm. Are you going to reduce the burden of other people or by you arguing and debating something, ah, now this work meeting is going to be an extra 15 minutes longer? I'm going to miss some of my lunchtime. You're giving me more work to do. You want to do a new computer system. I already know how to do Excel and Microsoft Word. I don't want to learn a new system that happens there. You're talking about like a different way that we're going to communicate, a different organizational chart. Who the hell do I speak to? Who do I complain to? Who's my manager? Todd, all you're doing is making my life more difficult. You have to be audience centric. And think about how can you communicate this so that the extra effort of listening to me now and the idea that I'm sharing will actually, in the very soon, will make it easier for you in terms of use of energy, easier for you in terms of less time, easier for you because you're going to have more fun doing this.
0: Mm, that's great. I think that was that was so insightful with regards to uh, showcasing that you're an expert, and then those different things with regards to. Saying the names, showcasing you're an expert by talking about the past. Like so many of those different things are such a solid framework that people can use to communicate their own ideas to hopefully maximize the chances of them being accepted by the people they're communicating with. So, kind of using maybe that same sort of framework, let's say somebody who is unhappy with or not unhappy, or they just feel like they're not getting paid to the extent they're looking for and they're looking for a raise. And I know. In particular, and this is a kind of personal because I have a, I have both a brother and a sister and my sister uh, has talked about how she asked for a raise one time and, and, and ended up getting it. And I know that a lot of, not, not just females, but a lot of females in particular are sometimes are like high trait agreeableness. And so they don't necessarily want to argue or they're afraid to negotiate on their own behalf. And so kind of with that being said, how can somebody who is naturally more agreeable, somebody who is naturally not going to fight on their own behalf, how can that person gain the courage and find confidence to to do so?
1: Oh my God, this is such a great question. I just I just want to clarify. did you say that your sister did get the raise or didn't get the raise? She
0: did. she did.
1: Okay. So that's that's awesome. There's so much here. Okay, let me unpack this because this is, and I want people to listen because this is very practical stuff here based on science, but I'm gonna put that in the background. One thing we know, Nick, you're dead on. On average, women are much less likely than men to show up in their manager or boss's office at a random three o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday and say, Hey, Nick over here is making more money than me. What's up with that? Can I get a pay raise? Men. Are more inclined to do that. And there's also, I mean, the, you know, there's still a little bit of misogyny in the workplace compared to how we would ideally like it to be. It's it's really not arguable how much that's an arguable question we can get onto a panel about. Culturally wise, there is a structure such that because men are more inclined to hang out with other men at work, So you're talking about going to the gym together. You're talking being in the Mm -hmm. men's bathroom together. You're talking about going, you know, going out for drinks later. All of these situations increase the opportunities for men compared to women to have opportunities to have this casual conversation. Here are the strategies that are going to help you. One, if you could find someone that could amplify your voice for you, so this is what Robert Cialdini calls social proof. This is when you rely on favors and and You know, men tend to be worse than this than women. Women tend to be worse than this than men in the context of asking for a salary raise or promotion. Find somebody who you think respects you, ask them, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you talk to whoever the boss is? And just put in a good word for me because I'm want i about to ask for a salary raise or a promotion. It it could really be useful for me. And I know you've said really nice things to me in the past. You've wrote really nice emails. People love doing favors. This is very important to remember. You think it's a sacrifice on their part. It's not. Like when people have power, they want to use it. They want to show that they're powerful. So you're giving them, you're basically saying, yes, you're asking for a favor, but you're also giving them a platter to say, you get to show that you're more powerful than me. Mm -hmm. You can do this and I can't. People love that. People love themselves. They love to do that. So hold that tightly. Second, one of the ways that women can be more inclined to be assertive in this moment is to think about what all women would like you to do in this moment. So think pro-socially. Think about if every woman was more inclined to ask for a raise, you would have the exact same salaries and you wouldn't have these inequities in the workplace in the first place. So think about you're doing, think about yourself as being um, a civil rights activist in this moment. Is mm-hmm. you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for the entire sex when you go in there. That motivation alone gives you an extra boost of courage to go in that office. Similarly, think to yourself, if you if your best friend was in the same situation, what advice would you give them? So this is called self-distancing. You're removing yourself a little bit from the equation and thinking of, well of course you tell your best friend if you're getting paid less and you think you're deserving of it, yeah, no, go do it. Why would you wait? Like that you're losing money every month that happens there. So think of that advice you would give and then ask yourself why are you not taking your own advice and that's a little bit of a courage boost. The fourth element that's going to help you and this also works for men it also works for young people as well who are less inclined compared to older adults in the workplace is that when you are in that office and talking to them and trying to make an argument try as much as possible to move from the subjective to the objective. So when I ask for a pay raise out of out of turn and I didn't wait for my annual evaluation at George Base University. I created a spreadsheet. It's a, it's a state school. I collected every single person's salary in my department, and I wrote down every metric that I knew I was amazing at. And I wrote down how many publications they have, how many citations that they've received to those publications, and I had this whole sheet. And then I put myself at the bottom of this sheet. And I intentionally highlighted a few people in terms of who making tons of salary compared to me. And their metrics didn't match up. And I just kind of, you know, midway through the conversation, showed them this piece of paper and said, listen, help me understand why I'm making less than those people who are highlighted in that document. When you get to the objective level, you've put them in a bind. There's a, you know, there's a lawsuit in the making if they say no to you in that situation. So those are the the four strategies that are pretty effective.
0: Yeah, no, that's. That's super solid. I think, um, like you said, that was super practical. And I I like that last part because after my sister did that, I was one of the things I told her, I was like, make sure you write down the different things that you did well that got you that because you never know when you're going to need those tools in your back pocket. You never know when you might be able to help somebody else do a similar thing. And so having those tools in your back pocket will, it's like maybe you even use them and you don't get the raise right away, but it'll give you some reps and and, and you, you'll have maybe more, more courage to do it the next time around.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, th- there's a real theme here, which is we have to do better at deconstructing what works well, what doesn't work well, because yeah. every, you know, all of the science that's out there, it's, it's for the person on average. And we have to do with our individual personalities our style of communicating, our particular relationships that we have. So we have to figure out how do we tweak these things that are kind of work for everyone, but create a way where it fits my personality and style. And everybody has to do that.
0: Yeah. Um, So one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, obviously this whole conversation is about kind of varying opinions, if you will to a certain extent and so if there's a group of people there's a you know you, one of the things you talk about in your book is the importance of an environment that is has good diversity of thought and there's a lot of different ideas and maybe varying opinions at what point is there too much diversity of thought where it's just all disagreement all the time or is it not necessarily too much diversity of thought is just not enough agility around how to embrace the diversity of thought and talk talk a little bit on on that idea of whether there's too much or there, everybody just needs to have more agility in embracing the diversity of thought.
1: Yeah. You know, you're the, you're one of the only people that just asked this question, which is a very sophisticated question. When we're talking about a, is there a curvilinear relationship to talk in, you know, geeky statistical terms? This is an important one. So if you look at the literature, the science, there's a lot of discussion about diversity. If you look at the literature, you know, dozens of studies, I mean, we're upwards, you know, we're over 70 studies now. There's almost no relationship between the diversity of a group and the amount of creative potential or performance level of the group, and the reason is it depends on other variables. So one of those variables, so you, I mean, you can get the Benetton commercial and you can have this incredibly racially diverse group, and you can have a you know a whole range of um, sexes that are in there. You can have a transgender male, female, and a male and a biological male and a biological female. There's no, there's no evidence so far that that group is going to outperform for women in terms of performing. This is important because it, what it means is, it doesn't mean diversity doesn't matter. It means that maybe there's a missing variable in that equation. And I think you tapped into it pretty nicely, which is diversity without participatory decision-making, where people mm-hmm. are, are able to actually be able to work with the content that exists which means I'm going to find your unique ideas. We're going to build on them as if every person there has their different Lego set. And I'm going to mix your cowboy and Indian Lego set, which is probably now um, banned because it's, it's uh, no longer socially acceptable, with my you know, Star Wars Lego set and someone else's grocery store Lego set. And by putting them together, we create this really interesting world that has never existed before. And that's it's a cool metaphor to think about how diversity works in a room. For that to happen, you have to, you, with the cowboy and Indian Lego set, has to not freak out if I put the Death Star um, next to the saloon on your Lego set and say, no, 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 it doesn't fit there, it doesn't belong there. You have to be able to be go back to that curiosity and intellectual humility to start asking really open-ended questions. So when you put the Death Star next to the saloon, and I wanted to have all these duels in the middle of my cowboy and Indian Lego block set, like what were you imagining? Because I I can't picture what you're picturing. So it's it's that give and take and it's that assumption of benevolent intent that, that you can assume mm. that I have goodwill when I come in there and you create a culture where you're going to have the norm that if you're going to introduce ideas, introduce them because you're trying to contribute and, cons- and be a, a constructive element to what we're trying to do, not to show that you're smart not to be a contrarian, and not because you're impulsive. So it's really about pulling back and being very careful in crafting what are the social norms of our group. And if we say every single time that we're together, we want critical thinkers, we want people that have autonomy or freedom to think, and we also want to work together and be collaborative as opposed to being competitive and and go a step further. A group that incentivizes people where the way you get rewards is not by being an individual star, but how the group performs, that leads to better group performance. And so what most organizations have, and this is what I you know, end up talking to when I come into organizations, is the incentives are for the individuals to show that they are the amazing one and they're the one that deserves the promotion. So all you got to do is change the incentive structure. Is that right. The only way you get the juice is if the group does better. And then all of a sudden those stars really start listening to other people and they start realizing I can't bear the burden of the work by myself. I've got to start figuring out what the strengths are of other people and then figure out how to leverage them.
0: Yeah, that's great. There are a few things that you hit on that were so good. You put in, you know, it's not necessarily just diversity. You need diversity with participatory decision-making. If it's without participatory decision-making, then there's not gonna be any innovative, creative ideas that come up from anybody else and you can't collaborate based off of that. And then I really liked what you said with regards to assumption of benevolent intent, assume that somebody else is not just saying something to shut you down, they're actually saying something to move the group forward and and hopefully benefit everybody. Let's, Let's say that I am bringing forth a new idea, to somebody who is not very good at assuming benevolent intent, and they react quickly, abruptly, and in an abrasive way towards my new idea, what are some strategies that I can do to help get out of that person's squirrel brain and get them to like pause and think a little little bit more objectively about the idea that I'm bringing forward, if that makes sense?
1: So I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do a, a quick role play of exactly what to do in this situation. So, okay. um, hey Nick, listen, I think your criticisms of my idea um pretty hard to take because there's a lot there, but uh, there's something powerful in there that I think is going to be useful. I I don't know exactly what you're thinking of, um, but I have a question. So, how can we take that in? and then work together and then make this thing better that we're talking about. Cause like I have the criticism down, but, um, what can we do together so we can make this better? So what I've just done there is I have had no defensiveness whatsoever. I've acknowledged verbally to the group, like almost like, uh, it's almost, um, uh, what's, what's the, the primate behavior where it's like a, a little bit of obsequious, obsequious behavior. I'm kind of like, Amazing idea, Nick. Amazing criticism. I welcome it in. But I'm using the words we and I'm using the words us on purpose. And now what I'm saying is, you're in. You're a collaborator and we're doing this together. And I'm just going to jump over asking your assent. And now we are now for you to disagree with me now is to say, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to work with you. I just wanted to say that your idea sucked. I've just done some psychological jujitsu. That's now kind of, we're now a team and the onus is on you to tell the entire group that you want to divorce me and we're going to be two separate people that are there. So it sounds a little manipulative, but it's actually not because you have someone that has a criticism. It might be harsh. Your ego might be hurt. That's okay. It's okay to express that you're anxious and then you're angry at that moment. But really try to remember this. What's What's the colloquial phrase? um, be willing to lose battles to win the war. Is, yeah. Is your brain, you're, you're, you're your going to bring this person in. And while they're your, you they're your immediate nemesis, they are going to be your greatest collaborator, but only if you bring them in.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so good. That's so good. And I think also one of the things that you did probably intentionally is when you were role-playing and responding you know, you you took your time with your response to me, right? You, you weren't super quick. You're, it's almost was like, while you were talking, the person who was originally very critical had time to like lower their heart rate and (laughs) relax a little bit because of your drawn out response to their criticism. So hopefully they had some time to think and settle down a little bit.
1: Really intuitive on your part. So Okay. So thanks th- thanks for catching that. So let me just kind of put that into words, what, what I did with there. I'm allowing time to soothe your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I want to say this. If you stumble over your words like I just did, it wasn't perfectly crafted. That's actually more authentic than coming out with a, a sentence with what I call no verbal graffiti whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So if you're stumbling and you're trying to switch your words, you're like, kind of around as you're talking. That's real that's genuine That's why we love John Stewart on the you know on the daily show was that he would laugh at his own jokes. Comedians aren't supposed to do that. We forget that the imperfections are why we spend so much money on buying a Turkish rug as opposed to buying something from Bed Bath and beyond. The only difference is the Turkish rug has mistakes in it. Imperfections are treated as that you are fully present. You are fully being yourself and embrace that as opposed to trying to act as if you have a well curated TED talk, which doesn't attract people. It actually repulses a lot of people.
0: Yeah, that's that was awesome. I love that imperfections are treated like you're fully present and authentic, and that, that's so true. I was laughing at what how you called it verbal graffiti. That's an awesome that's an awesome term and phrase. Um, but we're we're winding down here. But I want to since we talked about it a little bit beforehand and you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, I wanted to touch on just kind of health and fitness and and habits and psychology. If there is one most important thing, obviously there's a lot of different things, but a most important thing that you feel like you could communicate to my audience who is very health and fitness and goal-oriented with regards to, what you what you know about psychology and the importance and the skill of forming health and fitness habits and things like that, what would you communicate to them that it's really important for them to know? We'll be back to the interview in just a second. But first, I wanted to share a quick testimonial from a past participant of the 10-Week Transformation Program. I started running the 10WT in the beginning of 2020 and I've had over 150 people on counting go through it and they've seen amazing results both inside and out. If you're inspired to join after listening to the testimonial, then go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. We'll get back to the episode in just a minute, but first, here's what they had to say.
1: I'm Erin, I joined Nick's program because I wanted to get more fit, but just like kind of be more toned overall. So with Nick's help, he's really helped me figure out the best workouts that have reached, helped me reach my goals. And I've done three of these programs with him and every time I still see like more and more progress. So it's been really fun to just like over time, like see myself get more fit. Like he's literally given me abs, which is like my goal. My uh, favorite thing about the program, I think, is a camaraderie with everyone. I've made some really great friends from it, and I'm actually shocked at how much I actually like wake up at 5 a.m. You should definitely join the extending program. This is going to be f- uh, feedback that works, but you've probably heard it before, but maybe I'll describe it in a way that actually has a uh almost like a, an eagle or a condor talon where it'll be a little bit stickier and stay inside your skin. One of the biggest attractors for our own well being, and particularly in the fitness world is the social comparisons we make to other people, but also to ourselves. And so I'm sitting here, I don't know if, if you might be listening to the audio as opposed to the video. Um, I'm a 47 year old man. If I don't look in the mirror, I am internally 28 forever. And sometimes I act like a 28 year old, and sometimes I compare myself to 28. When I could eat an entire, you know, an entire two pies of pizza and three beers, and it would have the carbs would have no effect on my body whatsoever. My metabolism was incredible. Um, or just the idea that I could bench press 315 pounds and put those three plates, which feel so satisfying. Uh, and then as you get older, you realize the worst thing for your body is a barbell because you're going to have these asymmetries that are built into. The form, and you can't fix them. As opposed to dumbbells, we have to be able to distance ourselves from when we were at the peak of our lives physically, and recognize that phases and stages. And that you know, as you get to forty-seven, I'm not going to add any more muscle mass to my body, and so I'm focusing on developing my core. I'm not going to develop more fast twitch fibers in my hamstrings and my quads. Um, and so for that, um, I've changed sports. I've moved from tennis to pickleball and we have to do this for every part of our lives. And there's an extra bonus, which is as you accept this more compassionate comparison to older versions of yourself and other people, it also allows you to be generative and just meet people who have greater biceps, greater endurance, greater speed, and just compliment them and be comfortable not being king or queen of the
0: hill. Mm. That's good. That's good. I know I talk a lot about or talk a lot with people about comparison and and how to navigate that world. And so I think that was really helpful. And I think a lot of people will absolutely love that and get a lot of of value from it. So I appreciate you you sharing that aspect of it. Uh, But before I ask the last question here, Todd, I just want to acknowledge you've won, because this has been unbelievable. I know so many people are going to absolutely love this episode. I, you guys need to go back and take notes. I'm going to go back and take notes on this myself and, and learn how to implement some of these different things. And especially you guys who maybe are in workplaces or have bosses or have co-workers who maybe have disagreements with you, or you, you want to be able to introduce innovative, creative ideas to them, make sure that you implement a lot of these things that Todd has mentioned today. So Todd, I just really want to acknowledge you for all the work that you've done uh, on gaining all this knowledge, skills, and experience and communicating with us today. It's been awesome.
1: No, I appreciate it. You um, you, you are a good conduit for getting information out of people.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But you guys make sure that you go to Todd's website and you follow him, toddcaston.com. Make sure you follow him on the socials at Todd Caston there as well. And then make sure you Go order his new book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Um, Any other place that people should go and learn more about you?
1: No, just go to Amazon and I'd I'd appreciate it. If you you read the book, um, just tag me, write a review and just want to get get these ideas and improve society to as much people as possible.
0: Amen, that's awesome. Well, uh, last question here, Todd, is I think that in order to get closer to the best version of ourself, it's both a constant journey and a unique journey. I don't think we're ever at that best version of ourselves, And I think that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So final question is for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently do or three things that you could currently work on to get closer to that best version of Todd Cashin that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on?
1: I should have listened to earlier episodes of your podcast before I came on here. Okay, so for me, I'm gonna probably I probably have a whole list. Let me just end with three. So one, I know that everything's a trade off, and I have to carve space for. I'm a I'm an incredible father. I know that because um, I spent so much time I didn't have one growing up, and I made sure that I was going to be the opposite of what I had. Um, and I spend a lot of time focusing on my work. What the where I have the gap is I don't spend enough time cultivating my male friendships. And so that's something mm-hmm. I need to work on. It. And it's when you make a public proclamation about this kind of thing, you're more inclined to do it. Number two, um, carve space for being a white belt and kind of doing doing new things that I have no experience and no expertise whatsoever. Um, pickleball, like I just, I just mentioned now this is the third time I just started maybe six months ago and I love that I am just have no idea and I have to go on YouTube and I have to watch people and kind of learn it from scratch. And I never did really paddle sports. So this is all new to me. Um, the third one is to be much less hard on myself and just really appreciate every individual bit of feedback as opposed to, being hyper-focused on the large-scale feedback. And, and and the concrete example of that is, as we're having this conversation, the book my book came out three days ago. And there are so many metrics for authors to obsess about online. And I'm not going to say I'm not doing it because everyone keeps on sending me a text or a screenshot of what the metrics are of where it is on the charts. And it's really hard to divorce yourself from these numbers, but you are not the metrics. Um, you are not your BMI, which we know Body Mass Index is kind of nonsense. Um, you're not the number of where your book sells. It's really those, those individual emails you get and the individual messages of, of uh how it influenced people. And I have to really hold on to the metric is at the individual influence level, not the the broader game playing that that's in the algorithm at Silicon Valley is shoving down my throat with a massive, hairy, sweaty fist. <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, those are three great things. Honestly, I loved, the, I loved all of them, but carving new space for doing new things and being a, a white belt in new things, I think that's super critical for all of us to do uh, on a regular basis because it gives us a new goal to work towards and having a new goal to work towards provides us with, with motivation and provides us with a purpose on, on a regular basis. So I just really appreciate you sharing those three great things today, Todd. Uh, y'all go get the art of insubordination. I'm going to go... Make sure that uh, I get it ordered as well. Um, But that's all we got today, Todd. Really appreciate it, man.
1: Yeah, this is great. Loved it. Thank you.
0: That had to have been one of my favorite interviews of all time. I really hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Todd. And if you did, be sure you share it with a friend or family member by sending them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. And if you would like to leave a five-star rating and review, that would be super, super helpful as well. But y'all, man, this podcast with Todd was jam packed with value. I loved when Todd talks about the importance of curiosity, intellectual humility, perspective getting, and perspective taking. Oftentimes we don't do perspective getting. We don't hear other people out and hear where they're coming from. I also loved when Todd talks about how to negotiate for yourself, to showcase that you're an expert, and to do that by mentioning other people's names, to talk about your past experiences, and to show how your ideas would actually be easy and helpful to implement. And I loved how he talked about how to respond with agility when someone who is critical with your ideas. Be sure you go order a copy of his new book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. I literally just ordered an extra couple of copies for a couple of my team members because of how good it is. Remember to be open to hearing other people's opinions. Don't jump to conclusions. And remember to fend for yourself and fend for your own creativity and your own innovativeness. It's so key to your success and the success of your organization and the people that you're around. For now, it's time to take action. It's time to be curious. It's time to be humble and to gain perspective so that you can continue to get closer and closer to your best you.